yourself monitor your blood pressure in four easy-to-remember steps. Self-monitoring is power. Visit ManagerBP.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council, the American Heart Association, and the American Medical Association. In partnership with the Office of Minority Health and Health Resources and Services Administration. I'm Kevin Flynn with Rebecca Lavoie and Jack O'Brien. And these are their stories. You think you know who did it, but you don't know who did it. Law and order, law and order, law and order. It's no ordinary police procedure, baby. It's the FNOG of police procedures, baby. Law and order, law and order, law and order, law and order. These are their stories, these are their stories. Welcome to These Are Their Stories, the podcast about Network TV's most enduring crime franchise and the real-life cases that inspired their shows. I'm Kevin Flynn. Each podcast will break down an episode from either Criminal Intent, SVU, or Original Recipe. And today we're looking at SVU Season 6, Episode 12, Identity. Joining me to do just that is true crime author... And the host of the podcast, Crime Writers On, my wife, Rebecca Lavoie. Hello, Rebecca. Are you sure it's your wife and not her twin? Oh, my goodness. Don't (laughs) give it away. Don't give the twist away. Rounding out our panel is our very special guest from the Cracked Podcast, the editor-in-chief of Cracked Magazine, Jack O'Brien. Hi, Jack. Hi. Thank you guys so much for having me. I want to say that this is the God's Honest Truth, the first magazine I ever purchased myself was the July 1979 issue of Cracked Magazine. I'd imagine I was not the editor-in-chief at that <laughs> you, time. <laughs> you were you, probably not. I remember that because it was a spoof on The Empire Strikes Back. So you mean purchased yourself rather than rooted out from the back of your dad's closet. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and that I used my own money for. I'm sure I had a subscription to Highlights, but that didn't count. Right. Was that because Mad Magazine was sold out, or did you buy that like intentionally? That's the one thing I always hear is, oh, yeah. <laughs> the thing that we would buy when Mad was out. <laughs> no, I mean, I guess some people are Coke people, some people are Pepsi people, and so I was, I always... No one's a Pepsi person. Well, <laughs> <laughs> you're thinking of Shasta, and anyhow, I, I'm on the cracked team, so I'm really happy. But you guys, you know, things have changed so much in the publishing arena. How is it that you stay relevant in this digital age? Well, we publish six new pieces of content at least every day. So that helps. We have to write about something and things keep happening. So that's useful for our editorial purposes. Uh, And the way we stay relevant is kind of seeing how things resonate and kind of using the great thing about uh, the internet, I don't know if you guys are familiar with it, but uh, <laughs> heard of it, yeah. gives, you, <laughs> gives you instant feedback. And so we've kind of used that from the start to kind of get a sense of what's hitting and what people like. And then we just have a team of really funny people in a room and I whip them and shout at them and funny stuff comes out. So I have a question for you. Right now, your lead story on your website is the four most insane things happening right now. Are you just going to leave that headline up for the next few years? <laughs> that's, it should be a that column. Is a, that's a recurring feature that it's actually the 14 uh, <laughs> because we, we need way more than four. It's a recurring column that we do every Tuesday uh, that we started doing about a year ago. Not really sure why about a year ago <laughs> uh, we decided that that had to happen. But yeah, that one's just really just a rundown of news stories. Like we don't even have to... Really put a spin on those because the news itself is just 
insane enough on its own. Yeah, and I think the listicles that you do are actually really smart, smart and interesting. They're sometimes of his historical nature, and you know, eight things you didn't know about Abraham Lincoln's beard or something like that. That's right. And actually, not that. I mean, you know, I'm like, writing that down right now. <laughs> uh, yeah, it smelled like beans. It smelled like beans. <laughs> right. But Jack, as a yeah. as a cultural commentator, what do you think of the impact of Law and Order and SVU has had on people's perspectives of justice and and sexually based offenses? Oh, that's an interesting question. It really exposes a lot of real world things. I wish they were more straightforward in saying this was actually based on a thing that happened because, for instance, in the episode that we watched for this episode, one of the characters came on and I was like, oh, well, he's entirely too evil to be believable. And then <laughs> because only because I'm doing a podcast with you guys about it, I then went and looked and was like, oh, that's that's a real person. Holy <laughs> crap. Uh, so I, I think it's really compelling when you realize and I think you guys should be required listening for anybody who watches it because it really explains like how much of it is based in reality, which is pretty shocking. Call NBC immediately and tell them we should be required listening for everyone who watches SVU. Required. <laughs> I can't believe they haven't called you yet because it really does seem like an enhanced experience. Something tells me that phone call would be a little more uh, not as friendly as that awkward. one. Awkward. It would be a little awkward. <laughs> so, Jack, of all the franchises, which two cops are your favorite detective team? Favorite law and order detective. I don't think prior to this viewing experience I had ever watched an episode when I wasn't hungover. It was uh, <laughs> it was sort of like the comfort food of just like mindless, <laughs> comforting murders. Seeing horrible things happen to fictional characters was comforting to me for whatever reason. And uh, Briscoe and Green are kind of the platonic ideal in my mind when I think Law and Order. Those are the detectives that pop into my mind. I think he just compared Law and Order to a grilled cheese sandwich is what I, is what I just heard when I, he said well, that. You, I <laughs> think I've heard you guys compare it to Chinese food and pizza <laughs> delivery. And it's I was true. like, yes, those are also things that I enjoy when I'm hungover. <laughs> well, it is on Saturday mornings and Sunday mornings, so it's perfect. <laughs> and Monday mornings and Tuesday mornings. Uh, it's true. It's whenever you want. <laughs> yeah, they know what side their bread's buttered on. Jack, do you have a favorite prosecutorial team? Favorite Law and Order District Attorney Prosecutorial Team. I do because I knew you would ask me that. <laughs> Uh, you did your research. I, <laughs> well, Sam Watterson and Angie Harmon, Coy and Carmichael is what their names are on the show. I wouldn't have known that without the research. But those are the ones that pop into my head. Watterson, obviously, is the platonic ideal of the Law & Order DA. And Angie Harmon, I carried a torch for her uh, throughout the 90s. And I realized how profoundly she affected me when I was like doing research for this episode and saw that her and her husband Jason Seahorn had separated in 2014 and I was like inordinately happy about that. Ah. I, was always, I was like I always felt like she was too good <laughs> too good for him. He seemed like a real doofus but I watched a lot of Law and Order in my teens when they were partners and uh, say no more. Say no more. Leave it right me. there. Leave it right there. <laughs> you don't have to show us on the doll where Angie Harmon touched you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now let's take a look at the first half of this episode, season six, episode 12, Identity. Remember, we'll be talking about fictional detectives investigating a fictional sexually based offense. 
So if you find that particularly heinous, you might want to sample another one of our episodes. <laughs> Two guys who can't believe the address those hot models gave them was fake wind up in a part of town where rapists fall from a building and smash your windshield. Judging by the blood spatter on the hood, his heart was still pumping when he hit the windshield. Check this out. He's got a Rolex, diamond studs. SCA. Oh, his initials. Could be his girlfriend's. Then this girlfriend's got some serious issues with the relationship. Why do you say that? She left deep bite marks on his penis. Now they have to find the rape victim who tossed the guy from the roof. Stabler and Benson and a streetwise nun who knows sign language <laughs> look for the homeless deaf girl named Katie. She's been making money as part of a credit card scam run by the gang. When the cops find Katie with her throat slashed, they assume it was payback for getting their operation busted. But there's a twist. The DNA shows the bite mark on the penis came from a male. Ooh. The trail takes them to Logan, a prep school graffiti artist, and his twin sister, Lindsay. He denies ever being on the roof. Stabler and Benson suspect something deeper is going on with the twins, maybe sexually. Lindsay says that she was on the roof alone when she bit the attacker. They think Lindsay is covering for Logan because DNA doesn't lie. The bite mark came from a boy. And that's when we learn Lindsay was actually born a male, a fact that even she doesn't know. Well, I think we have seen just about every New York vignette to set up the discovery of a body, you know, jogging in the park and they're not answering the front door and they stumble across the body. But here you have two guys sent to the wrong neighborhood and one of them says, man, those hot models were totally into us. <laughs> Jack, has this ever happened to you? Oh, constantly. My wife is always giving me incorrect addresses to meet her at. And, uh, those guys were incredible, probably not the top of the barrel when it comes to casting. And uh, there's a moment, I, I actually watched this episode twice, and the second time I noticed that like they both react like <laughs> like neither of them really do anything. They like turn their heads and then like stop like, OK, did you say cut yet? Or and <laughs> they just left it in, I guess, because like they had to leave the body still for a second for it to register for people. But yeah, that was a great entrance from our rapist. And let's talk about like a little bit of like funny placeholder slash sloppy writing. The two characters were named Herb and Melvin. <laughs> no, come on. <laughs> no hot Melvin. model ever talked to a Melvin. <laughs> or a Herb. Right. Or a Herb. <laughs> That's why you never get laid, Melvin. That's what Herb says. <laughs> yeah, it has nothing to do with his name being Melvin. <laughs> right. Melvin looks like sort of a tiny version of Martin Starr from Silicon Valley. Yes. Uh, but it was definitely because he just gives up too easily. That, that's why he doesn't get laid. Now let's turn our attention to the gang, the Stone Cold Assassins. No, they're not beefing over turf. They've got an Excel sheet with your social security number on it. <laughs> and a love of pinball. And a love of pinball. <laughs> yeah, what I thought was funny is that Ice-T's character, Finn, is able to like identify the gang immediately. The gang whisperer? because yes, he's basically the gang whisperer. You know, oh, that's not blah, blah, blah. That's not a girlfriend. That's the Stone Cold Assassins. But you also skipped over like a really important forensic detail. Um, the victim, Louise Vega, he didn't just have bite marks in his penis. He had deep bite marks oh. in his penis. <laughs> yeah, this is something that kept coming up over and over again. So, you know, as far as this gang goes, they love pinball, they love spreadsheets, and <laughs> I don't know what the deep bite marks say, but I'm sure that there's something there. Sexual assault, right? Well, That, that was the other thing that <laughs> yeah. they seem to be... Love the rape. Yes, they love it. Right. <laughs> That's if the girls, their rubies, want to get in with the gang. They got to roll the dice and sleep with that number. That's Confession: I don't know what a ruby is. They kept saying it. 
and I don't know. Is that just like a term for like a girl and a gang? I don't know what that means. Well, I got to set a dice over here <laughs> and we'll go and we'll figure it out later. <laughs> okay. I just have to say that the Stone Cold Assassin seems like a name that was written by somebody who's not up on the latest street slang. <laughs> like Stone Cold, you dig jive turkey? It's like not, it's not a thing that I think the kids are saying in the streets anymore. Not to mention that there's no assassinating in sight. There's yeah, it's uh, all identity I, theft. Identity theft, a sexual assault, right. and usually the initiation is what? A, to kill somebody? Yeah. Not this time. Not in this gang. Plus it's co-ed. It's how, many, co- <laughs> how many co-ed gangs are there? I, I don't really see many of those on other uh, crime procedurals. They assassinate your credit score. Oh. <laughs> It'll never recover. <laughs> so when they first go to interrogate one of the rubies, uh, <laughs> she's working at a fruit market, which is like classic law and order sort of uh, <laughs> setup where like a New Yorker is doing New Yorker things. But she's just standing there as the cops <laughs> approach her, just like kind of looking off in the middle distance. And then they ask her some questions and then she's like, ah. Maria, can you cover me? And this woman who's in the background actually doing work, like stacking fruit, then like comes over and they don't show her. But I'm assuming she like just walked over and stood there <laughs> in, in completely still because that's what she was doing prior to the, the cops coming up. Yeah. Was, there was a lot of moments like before the action started or like where the actors hadn't like started acting in their head or after the actors stopped acting that were like left in by the editors that I thought. <laughs> Funny. Could have edited a little more tightly. A little more tight. Hey, they had an hour to fill, right? They did, which is why it took so long for that body to fall off the roof. <laughs> yeah, it did seem like it took forever. Like it seemed like the even the first time I watched it, I was like, "Oh, so a body's gonna fall off the roof onto that windshield." But like they did like three different shots of the windshield before it happened. They forgot the slide whistle. Right. <laughs> that would have been amazing. Now, Jack, did you find it educational to learn so much about graffiti and identity theft as they kept dropping statistics in the middle of arrests? Yeah, that was really... The identity theft thing was like a a primer on identity theft. People call me paranoid for shredding my junk mail. Blank credit cards and Boston machines. It's like printing their own money. Ten million victims last year. Cost banks and consumers 50 billion. Those are lost each year, and it was a really not-so-subtle lecture like basically reading a USA Today article on the problem of identity theft. It's kind of like, the more you know. (laughs) (laughs) Same with the graffiti lesson. You know, they go to that office where that guy, one of the detectives says, you know, street art. Like, it's not art. Anti-graffiti task force removed 16 million square feet of that art last year. All at taxpayers' expense. It's a crime that costs how much per year? Like $16.4 million a year out of the city's budget to clean up. And how many square feet they had to clean. It's a scourge in our society. You know, the one thing I'll take on bridge with around the identity theft spreadsheet entry is, uh, you know, they were showing that, you know, the homeless lady had, Peggy had, you know, all the papers in her cart they were collecting Mm -hmm. for the gang. And it was bills, right? It was telephone bills, credit card bills. If you look at any one of your bills, how many of them have your social security number and your phone number and your address on them? Like, none of them actually do. So, I don't know. I don't know how they're putting those threads together, but I'm actually kind of impressed with this gang. I think instead of Stone Cold Assassins, they should be like Stone Cold Accountants. (laughs) They could still keep all their jackets. Stone Cold Actuaries. And their tattoos. Yeah, all their SCAs. Yeah. I just write my social security number on all my bills before I throw them out just to be safe, (laughs) you know? Gotta do it. Gotta (laughs) And by the way, who doesn't love having a badass nun who knows all about gangbangers? 
She's like, come on, I'm taking you out. Yeah, she's like, she's not going to talk to you. Although that kind of got her in trouble. So they question, I forget, the pretty deaf woman's uh, Katie. Katie. And she runs away from them. Her friend, the nun, is like, stop. She won't talk to you. She has to, like, <laughs> go through me. She's like the agent for this deaf homeless woman. But then, like, that ends up killing her. Yeah, that was a little bit weird. I mean, the, first of all, that the, the nun is basically Annie Sullivan, right? Now she, she's the only one who can communicate with Katie. <laughs> there's no other translators in New York. <laughs> That's right. There's yeah. no one else in New York City who speaks sign language. Not even that person next to the mayor every time he does a press conference. He's not available. Uh, but also but she that, could read lips when it, when it came to, we're taking you downtown. Exactly. She knew that shit and got exactly. the hell out of town. But that everybody who talked about Katie, like those two gangbanging rubies, mm-hmm. uh, they were like, oh yeah, she's good looking. Like, if you know that a homeless person who, by the way, poor Katie was completely covered with muck and grime. Mm-hmm. And the first way you think to describe her is that she's like kind of good looking. <laughs> she's <laughs> also deaf. Get that yeah. woman a modeling contract for <laughs> exactly. God's sake. Like, that's everybody described her. They're like, yeah, he messed around with this very pretty homeless lady. Who's deaf? I don't think pretty would be the first adjective that would come to mind. I'm just saying. Right. But I feel like the detective gives up on the chase way too easily. (laughs) She's just like, nah, she's not going to talk to you. And he's like, well, if you say so, just bring her in when you can. (laughs) She got all the way through the crosswalk. Oh, well. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could call for backup, but what's the point? She won't hear the siren. Oh, exactly. Hey, we have a Hey, It's That Girl. Hey, it's that girl. <laughs> Jack, can you name the actress who plays Dr. Rebecca Hendricks? Yes. Uh, Mary, she has three names. Mary, I thought I wrote it. Rebecca, can you help him out? Mary Stewart Masterson, That's a.k.a. It. Fried Green Tomatoes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, also known for her breakout role in the John Hughes movie, Some Kind of Wonderful. Right, right. Uh, her character, Dr. Rebecca Hendricks, apparently she and Olivia Benson went to the police academy together. She used to be a cop. <laughs> like, yes. And now she's a psychiatrist with hospital privileges. Once upon a time, two beautiful girls went to the police academy. <laughs> <laughs> Aside from his anger issues, he's paranoid and unstable. Why is he in there without a parent? They're on their way. You're forgetting I used to be a cop. So she decided that she was going to leave law enforcement to become a doctor. This is her backstory, and so that's why she's... She's hanging around. This was the end of like a limited run, I, I'm assuming, right? Because it was like they, they all knew who she was. But then it seemed like the last time we saw her, there were like some meaningful looks like nobody's ever going to hear from you again. <laughs> <laughs> you would think that, but she actually made appearances in the next couple of seasons. Oh, interesting. And there, yeah, there is sort of a famous one where she comes back and Cragen asks her to analyze the relationship, the professional relationship between Stabler and Benson. They're too close. Ooh. Are they too close? <laughs> Interesting. And, and she says, yes, they're too close. Yes, they're too close. And what should I do about it? Break them up so you'll lose your best two detectives. But it right, did feel kind of like, yeah, this was a nice one-off. I was a little uh, surprised that she was wrong so often. <laughs> like, it seemed like her characteristic was like being the person who's actually wrong about a lot. Like, at one point she says... You know, they claim that twins can sense each other's deaths even when they're miles apart, which... No, they don't. Like, <laughs> did you study at the University of the Internet? Like, that's just an urban legend that she picked up somewhere. But, like... Sounds like she got that from a listicle on CrackedMagazine.com. <laughs> right. No, we debunk stuff oh, like that. Come on. She should read more Cracked. 
Are we going to talk about the other Hey, It's That Guys in the first half of this episode? Who's that? Famous soap opera actress, Hillary B. Smith, who played Nora on One Life to Live for a gazillion years. You, she that was a Logan contradiction in terms, a famous soap oh, opera. Oh, I'm sorry. If you are a soap opera fan of any kind, Nora was a legacy One Life to Live character. The guy who played her husband was John, I think his last name was Bulger. He also was on the One Life to Live for a few years. But Nora, legacy, legacy One Life to Live character, somebody that anybody who had watched a snippet of daytime TV on ABC for a long period of time would recognize in a second. Sorry. Hey, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of soap operas, I, I did at various times throughout this feel like we were watching a month's worth of soap opera plot condensed down into like a single episode of television. Totally. It was very twisty and turny, but like the sort of twists that you get after watching like 150 episodes of One Life to Live or whatever. They were like Friday twists. It was like it was like all the Friday <laughs> episodes from one month <laughs> right. packed into one hour of Law and Order SVU. What? Twins? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Played by the same person? Yeah, Riley McClendon was the young actor who played both Logan and Lindsay. Rebecca, how did he do? Uh, well, first of all, I think the actor himself, toward the end of the episode, kind of crushed it. But you said it. my brother had to do it. It's very complicated, Lindsay. Stop it! Could you just tell me what's going on? I feel like I'm going crazy. You were born a boy. How? There was an accident right after you were born. Lindsay, don't listen to anything they're telling you. Shut up! I knew it! I never once felt right! There was a huge downside, though, to the same actor playing both of those characters, which is that the entire episode now, granted, I know that now it's 2017. What year was this uh, episode? 2004. Okay. So, you know, we're talking 13 years later, but it didn't hold up their lack of being able to figure out that something was up with these twins because he was 100% definitely a guy in a wig. Like 100% yes. definitely. <laughs> right there is when... no way. And I think the episode would have been a lot stronger and more believable had they cast someone else to play the sister. Maybe that the hormones had had like a change on the features. Then he would have been like, oh, snap. But to the viewer, from the moment poor Lindsay walks on the screen, you're like, Well, I'm going oh. to defend that and then go to Jack. <laughs> but because the idea is they, they are identical twins. Right. And so in order for the end for the payoff to be, you can't tell the difference between them. Oh, I can so tell the to difference bring in the a, end. Uh, Lindsay had her hair like swished back and Jack still had his off. Oh, like, great. Okay. Obvious. Well, we'll put you in the lineup then. <laughs> Jack, what do you think about uh, young Riley's performance? The second Lindsay, the girl twin, showed up, I was like, oh, there goes a guy in a wig. That's uh, <laughs> That was a weird reason. Like, are they going to address that? Or And then there are like these kind of looks on the detective's faces after they talked to her that I thought they were going to go, hey, that's a guy in a wig, right? Like <laughs> after after interrogating her, but like they were just, I, I don't know, they, they were playing it like they had no idea. And then the boy version of Riley, the boy character. Logan. Was, yeah. Logan. He was coming in hot, like right from the start. He was like, <laughs> what are you talking about? Like just having the biggest meltdown. I thought he was much better playing the female version. I totally agree. I think the breakdown, what we'll get to in part two, was outstanding uh, performance-wise. But one yeah. of the things that, you know, to what Jack just said about the adult's cluelessness how many times in this episode, even in the first half only, did we hear someone say, that's not possible? 
over and over and over again. <laughs> and knowing what you know now is like a 2017 person who's like living through this huge movement of trans becoming like the thing that we now know is totally possible and is everywhere. When you see this over and over, that's not possible. You're like, yes, it is. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's totes possible. <laughs> it is weird contextually that a 12-year-old would be in that position and like not have any idea. But you would think that that would have been the very first thing just based on how much she looked like her twin brother with a wig on. Right, right. And a stuffed bra. Exactly. I, I checked on the midpoint is the point at which Lindsay is told specifically it's impossible. It was your brother's DNA by Mariska Hargitay. And like she gets this look on her face. And then so right after the midpoint, they have their weird creepy twin language conversation. So <laughs> I think what I think the way it breaks down from a story structure standpoint is I, by the way, this a lot of this episode was just based on exploiting the fact that we find twins creepy as a <laughs> as a species. <laughs> they're, they're just generally creepy. Especially uh, when creatures. they left on those uh, big wheels through the <laughs> down the long hallway. Down the long hallway. <laughs> no, yeah. that didn't actually happen. The other thing I noticed in the first shot with both Logan and Lindsay in the frame is just it's like a pet peeve I've always had that filmmakers seem way too impressed with their own ability to like duplicate a person in frame like they always do it like it's this like amazing <laughs> yeah. magic trick. It's a split screen right. but you'll never know. Yes. Exactly. And including the final shot is like basically like the, the most obvious split screen ever but they're like ooh you're seeing two of them but I... one of them has slightly different hair. But well, how could that be one went one way with Stabler and the other walked the other way with Benson. It's not possible. What kind of black magic is this? It's not possible. It's not possible. All right, now let's take a look at the second half of this episode. Mr. and Mrs. Stanton explain that Lindsay, who was actually born Lucas, lost most of his penis during a circumcision accident, Ugh. at which time all male TV viewers said, whoa, that can happen. <laughs> Under the advice of creepy Dr. Blair, they decided to raise him as a girl and give him estrogen in the hopes that he'd grow up identifying as a woman. Blair sees the identical twins as the perfect test subjects to prove gender is nurture, not nature. When Lindsay learns the truth, she says things finally make sense. She chooses to stop taking the estrogen and live life by his genetic gender. Meantime, Logan reveals to Cragen that Dr. Blair's therapy is pretty fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> he used to show us pictures of adults having sex. Did he touch you? Just to put us into our positions. He used to make me and my sister pretend we were having sex. Blair is arrested for being a fucktard, but he finally makes bail three days later. That's when one of the identical twins is seen entering Blair's office and killing him. But which one of them did it? We'll never know. They can't charge both twins, but they know the siblings will never turn on each other. Well... <laughs> what you think that's weird that whole thing that is that, okay that is some crazy stuff but <laughs> but Rebecca you keep saying you think it's impossible that the adults do not see Lindsay as a boy well yeah duh a b it's easier to dig a hole than build a wall that's an expression no, I never no, heard no. before it's easier to, any plastic surgeon will tell you it's easier to dig a hole than build a pole it's easier to dig a hole than build a pole 
Oh, right. that's what it was. From this erudite doctor who like played like, <laughs> I am the highest of high class, my man. You are bourgeois trash. And then he's like, hey, ask any plastic surgeon. They'll tell you. Easier to dig a hole than build a pole. Wah, wah. I was like, what? I couldn't quite place his <laughs> accent, but he does have a Dr. Mengele vibe, right? Like this is a Nazi experiment. Absolutely, he does. It's all part of the package. In order for the experiment to work, she has to look like a girl be treated like a girl, and taught to act like a girl. Your experiment didn't work. I disagree. Mister, you can't change someone's sexual identity. Children are born psychosexually neutral, a blank slate. Gender identity is determined by nurture, not nature. First of all, I did think, I have seen this episode before, but, you know, with so many twists in all these episodes, hard to remember exactly where each one is going to go. I did think we might spin off into perhaps like an anti-circumcision little half storyline with Munch maybe being like the conspiracy theorist around circumcision. It seems like something that he's he Jewish. Say. He's, he's pro-circumcision. Yeah but, you know, yeah, but you would imagine that uh, he would be the one who'd be like... <laughs> You know, anyway, uh, so that didn't happen. He was the one on identity theft who said, this is why I shred all my junk mail. <laughs> exactly. But the fact that uh, mom and dad had been told all these times that there was male DNA and they were like putting poor Logan out there for his stuff to be searched, for him to be like questioned without his parents <laughs> in the room, by the way. They knew. It's not like they didn't know. I mean, maybe the cops maybe they were forgot. stupid. They're <laughs> they like, forgot. what? <laughs> right. Oh, right. The circumcision thing. Yeah, I actually thought this was a dog whistle to the bizarrely rabid anti-circumcision people of the internet. That's one of those things that if you just mention it, your comments already, just based on what we've said so far, uh, <laughs> will be filled with people debating the morality of Close this episode to comments immediately. Yes, yes. <laughs> Maybe we could talk about Scientology circumcision to make it even better. So, Jack, what do you think of mom and dad's reasoning as to why raising Lucas is Lindsay? Well... I thought it was bananas. Uh, I thought it was <laughs> oh, crazy. As... That's the wrong word to use to describe yeah, that. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I thought it was crazy. Um, it's a thing that you should let the child decide for themselves. But it's also a thing, as we'll hear when your distinguished British gentleman comes on and explains the real world implications that is not as far fetched as I thought it was. Again, this is uh, well, it seems like a million years ago. But our understanding of the trans community in the mainstream has has come a long way. Right, but poor Lindsay wasn't trans. Right, poor this Lindsay a, was forced to be a girl. Well, th well, that's it. I mean, while some people might see this as a trans issue in the way of the story, I actually think it's the flip side of the coin because today trans people are trying to convince the skeptics that the gender they were born with doesn't match their gender identity, so they can't live life as their genetic gender. But doesn't this prove the claim conversely? Because no. no, because they're showing someone whose gender they were born with secretly match their gender identity, but they can't live life as the opposite gender. The equation works both ways. No, it's the opposite. What it's saying is that you are who you are, period. You can pretend to be someone else or have somebody dress you up as somebody else, but if you know that you're not that then you just aren't. So I think that's Lucas, what I just said. I'm, I'm turning my head away from you <laughs> and going to Jack now. I actually think this episode had a very pro-trans message, even though I'm I'm 100% sure they didn't mean to do that at the time. Right. Because the, the whole outcome of this message is that Lucas knew he wasn't a girl. His parents could dress him up like a girl. They could, they could put those little socks in his bra, which were supposed to, I'm sure, be boobs because of hormones or whatever. He could grow his hair long, which was obviously just a wig, yada, yada, yada. But he always knew. He knew he 
he was a boy. He kissed a girl. His mother didn't and he like liked it. it. He liked it, but his mother, mother didn't. didn't. Like Once again, my feminist tackles have been raised by law and order. This idea that it really seemed to come from dad is because something's wrong with little Lukey's penis. Right. He'll never get to be a man or a real boy. He gets this creepy far away look in his eyes when he's like, imagine him having to say it to the woman he falls in love oh, with to reveal bullshit. the embarrassment of having a sort of weird dick. It is hard to understand, especially for Elliot, because you remember his question. It's supposed to be a routine procedure. What? Circumcision. They took off too much? Too much off? <laughs> <laughs> but I, I actually think it's a really interesting moral conundrum that the parents are in that, like, they ended up going in a completely bizarre direction. I actually have a nine-month-old at home, and that would be a hard thing to come to terms with, that, like, your child has just been imprinted with this problem that he's going to have to deal with well down the road. But I, I also agree that it's sort of a pro-trans message in the sense that the trans movement is about people being able to, you know, express their identity and, you know, having agency in feeling what their true identity is. And the parents, by sort of manipulating and like forcing Lindsay to live a lie, I, I think specifically Lindsay says when they tell her the truth, she says, I've always felt like something's not right. I think she said, and that's like what you will hear people who talk about growing up and coming out as trans say is that growing up they just always felt like something wasn't quite right yeah now i think the argument that i was trying to make for rebecca and maybe i didn't do it as no, artfully didn't. as i could <laughs> but i but this this is the point that it doesn't matter what your genitalia is and what people tell you how to dress it is how you feel inside right and yes. whether or not it's because you're born and you don't feel like you match your genetic gender or you have no memory of being born a male and you have your testicles and your penis removed by an accident. Either way, you can't just be raised the wrong gender. Okay, first of all, were his testicles removed as well? I don't think we heard that. I think oh, you yeah. added that detail. Oh, no, no. You, we heard. We got the full rundown. Of what happened with the of, circumcision accident? Oh, yeah. Oh, well, yeah. Dr. Blair was very proud of uh, all the stuff that he did. <laughs> all removing right, well, the remaining penile tissue. They removed the remaining penile tissue and the testicles at a later surgery, at a later right. point. Yeah, Rebecca, so, I can tell you every guy fucking knew everything that happened on uh, that they were paying attention. Here's my here's my parental question though. Aside from the super sexist, no woman will ever love you if your penis is weird dad <laughs> right. moment, right? right? Aside from that, like when you have a baby, right? A baby that's like seven pounds, probably lighter, because it was a twin. They're not going to be using that thing for a long time. Right. So the idea that because it's damaged, the solution is like, let's just cut it off is bananas. I'm going to go with Jack's first uh, descriptor. It is bananas. B-A-N-A-N-A-S. All right. Well, let's get back to the fictional story here for a second. <laughs> At but the end, we have a murder. I would ask uh, both of you very smart people. Uh, they couldn't figure out how to solve the crime and prosecute the kids on the show. How would you go about doing it? Jack? <laughs> That's a good question. I probably wouldn't because I feel like it was totally justified uh, because they murdered evil incarnate. But 
Yeah, I don't know. Do, do you have an actual way that you would have? Is there like a logic problem here? I would use that old tried and true thing where I put the twins in separate rooms and tell the other one that the other one flipped on them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it works all the time yeah. on these shows, right? Yeah, obviously these two are like ready to flip on one each <laughs> on each other. Just can't wait to get. Then I'd have both bedrooms to myself <laughs> uh, and all this new wardrobe. But according to Hendrix, they would be able to hear when you were talking to the other one, uh, according to her bizarre pseudoscience. And her like complete lack of ethics when it comes to like how to operate in a hospital. Like, yeah. hello, HIPAA laws. Yeah. Like, I don't know if the HIPAA laws were in effect exactly back then, but um, she she would say. I wasn't supposed to do this, but I did it. Right. Here's, here's I the had no right to, but I pulled this file. <laughs> I don't want to say anything, but maybe you could go down and pick up an old copy of the New York Times and look in the birth announcements. <laughs> or you go to City to Hall. Just saying. <laughs> All right, let's take a look at the real-life story that inspired this episode. It's time for Ripped from the Headlines. I'm going into this cold, by the way. You think you know who did you it. You think you know who did it. But you don't know who did it. You don't know who did it. Ripped from the headlines. This episode takes cues from the real-life story of David Reimer. He and his twin brother were born in Winnipeg in 1965. As a baby, his penis was destroyed during a botched circumcision. His parents took him to a specialist who advised they remove the remaining sex organs and secretly raise the boy as a girl. To Dr. John Money, Reimer was critical to his research on gender neutrality. His theory was David, who had no memory of being a male, could live emotionally and functionally as Brenda, and his twin brother acted as the perfect control subject for his experiment. Reimer said Money made the twins act out sexually in front of him and showed them nude photos as part of the therapy. Despite Money's claims the ongoing treatments were successful, Brenda was terribly unhappy, tearing off her dresses and getting into fistfights at school. She told adults she felt like a boy. At age 14, he finally learned the secret of his gender. Reimer spent years having surgeries to recorrect the previous procedures. He suffered crippling depression, never fully coming to terms with the past. David Reimer committed suicide in 2004. Damn. Yeah, this is a very sad story, and almost all of the details are the same when we get to the second part of the episode, except for the murder. And the real-life doctor had a way more evil name than the doctor in the show, John Money. Money was his name, yes. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, so, Jack, how do you feel about it when Dick Wolf changes the true-life narrative so that the guy gets his comeuppance? I, I enjoyed it. I think he deserved it, and so did the real-life guy, probably. And yeah, I, I definitely think ha having it end with a suicide would, would have been less satisfying, certainly for the viewer. The the twin brother, I, I actually looked this up and the twin brother also committed suicide before the one who had had the surgery. But yeah, it was just a really, really dark, dark story. So yeah, I mean, you can uh, you know look at the episode and think, well, what's rough for these twins is that they may be dealing with a, a murder rap. But if you know the real life story, it's a lifetime of pain? coming to pain, coming to terms with not just the 
sexual abuse that they suffered at the hands of their therapist, but this whole crazy experiment. The lies their parents told them is insane. It's totally insane. Those, I didn't think people in Canada behaved that way. I'm really, really shocked <laughs> Very and upset rude. by this. I, I, I do have one just like plot question. They did say question, they were though. sorry, though. <laughs> <laughs> I do have one plot question, though. Yeah. So the twins decide to commit this perfect murder. They wait until the exact moment when the hormone medications will no longer be altering Lucas's DNA, which, by the way, I kind of call bullshit on the science there. I don't think epigenetics, like, reverse themselves, like, in five days, but whatever. So they wait this specific amount of time. They wear the hoodie. One of them wears the hoodie. They go in. They commit the crime. They murder the guy. Why, oh, why did they go to the cops before the murder to give the cops the motive for why they were going to commit the murder? Why didn't they just kill the guy without, like, doing that whole going to the cops part first? They still had 10 minutes to fill. What the fuck, Rebecca? (laughs) Is this this the first time you had a television? (laughs) No, it's not. So I, my understanding of that was that they were going to the cops to get justice. And then the guy posts bail after only three days in prison. Ah. And they're like... What the fuck? Like, why? I I thought we were going to get justice, and so they take justice into their own hands. Hmm. The only thing I found weird was that Dr. Blair was uh, smashed over the head with one of his large, heavy pieces of art. However, that kid's pretty short. I don't know. Did he get up on a stool and hit him? Okay, so these are the same kids, by the way, prep school attendees who are apparently also, like— top level street graffiti artists (laughs) which by the way when you look at the beginning of this episode at the end talk about like very very improbable sort of thread that sort of ties that opening scene to the end so yeah i mean i would say if you can scale a building and do a 50 foot high mural you know when you're like a preteen kid who goes to prep school during the day you could probably pick up a rock and hit someone on the head with it that's just my that's just my guess right (laughs) (laughs) yeah they seemed like very very capable criminals uh and i I think they they had the malice in their heart to uh (laughs) to pull that off i did feel like one part of their plan that i didn't totally understand is so they go and look at a uh, video of the doctor's office it's like a cctv video and uh the killer one of the two twins walks in and they're like completely bundled up in this coat and then like walks out still bundled up they're like ah the hood's up we can't tell but you wouldn't have been able to tell either way (laughs) they were both they looked at like then they go over to the two twins and like the only difference is that one of them has like spiky hair was was, were they trying to cover up their hairdo because you can change that pretty easily Oh, good point. Good point, yeah. <laughs> Fool them. That is the perfect crime. <laughs> Gotta cover up my laid back hairdo. Way to bring back the levity after all that suicide talk. Nice job, Jack. Nice yeah. job. That's <laughs> what I'm here for, making suicide funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's going to do it for us. We want to thank our special guest, Jack O'Brien from Cracked. Thank you guys so much. Where can our listeners uh, follow you online? Uh, you can find me at Jack underscore O'Brien, O-B-R-I-E-N at the microblogging site Twitter that I write for, um, <laughs> as well as uh, weekly, uh, I host the Cracked podcast that drops every Monday. It's through Earwolf, and you can find it at your nearest purveyor of fine podcasts. <laughs> it's funny and it's smart. I would definitely recommend it. Rebecca, how can our listeners follow you? They can find me on the microblogging site known as Twitter as well, <laughs> at Reb Lavoy, and that is also my handle on Instagram. 
And you can track me on Twitter at Kevin P. Flynn. You can also tweet to us at Law & Order Pod. Our newsreader was Cy Freighter. Our theme music was composed and performed by Uncanny Valleys. Line editing by Henry Lavoie. Content assistance from Travis Roy. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave a review on iTunes. It helps others discover this program just like you did. All clips in this podcast were used in compliance with U.S. Copyrights Act fair use exemption for criticism and commentary. Special thanks to the elite squad of the Law & Order Wiki community for preserving the evidence. If you want to know what episodes we're talking about in our upcoming shows, go to lawandorderpodcast.com. These Are Their Stories was recorded in Square Egg Studio and is a production of Partners in Crime Media. Partners in Crime Media. Self-monitor your blood pressure in four easy-to-remember steps. Self-monitoring is power. Visit ManagerBP.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council, the American Heart Association, and the American Medical Association. In partnership with the Office of Minority Health and Health Resources and Services Administration.